Book One, Part Two of Xenophon's Anabasis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anabasis by Xenophon, translated by H. G. Dakins. Book One, Part Two. Number Three. At Tarsus, Cyrus and his army halted for twenty days, the soldiers refusing to advance further, since the suspicion ripened in their minds that the expedition was in reality directed against the king, and, as they insisted, they had not engaged their services for that object. Clearchus set the example of trying to force his men to continue their march, but he had no sooner started at the head of his troops than they began to pelt him and his baggage train and Clearchus had a narrow escape of being stoned to death there and then. Later on, when he perceived that force was useless, he summoned an assembly of his own men, and for a long time he stood and wept, while the men gazed in silent astonishment. At last he spoke as follows. Fellow soldiers, do not marvel that I am sorely distressed on account of the present troubles. Cyrus has been no ordinary friend to me, when I was in banishment, he honored me in various ways, and made me also a present of ten thousand darics. These I accepted, but not to lay them upon for myself, for private use, not to squander them in pleasure, but to expend them on yourselves. And, first of all, I went to war with the Thracians, and with you to aid, I wrecked vengeance on them in behalf of Hellas, driving them out of the Chersonese when they wanted to deprive its Hellenic inhabitants of their lands. But as soon as Cyrus summoned me, I took you with me and set out, so that, if my benefactor had any need of me, I might requite him for the good treatment I myself had received at his hands. But, since you are not minded to continue the march with me, one of two things is left to me to do. Either I must renounce you for the sake of my friendship with Cyrus, or I must go with you at the cost of deceiving him. Whether I am about to do right or not, I cannot say, but I choose yourselves, and, whatever betide, I mean to share your fate. Never shall it be said of me by anyone that, having led Greek troops against the barbarians, I betrayed the Hellenes, and chose the friendship of the barbarian. No, since you do not choose to obey and follow me, I will follow after you. Whatever betide, I will share your fate. I look upon you as my country, my friends, my allies, and with you I think I shall be honored, wherever I be. Without you, I do not see how I can help a friend or hurt a foe. My decision is taken. Wherever you go, I go also. Such were his words, but the soldiers not only his own, but the rest also, when they heard what he said, and how he had scouted the idea of going up to the great king's palace, expressed their approval, and more than two thousand men deserted Xenius and Passion, and took their arms and baggage train, and came and encamped with Clearchus. But Cyrus, in despair and vexation at this turn of affairs, sent for Clearchus. He refused to come, but, without the knowledge of his soldiers, sent a message to Cyrus, bidding him to keep a good heart, 
for that all would arrange itself in the right way, and bade him keep on sending for him, whilst he himself refused to go. After that he got together his own men, with those who had joined him, and of the rest any who chose to come, and spoke as follows. Fellow soldiers, it is clear that the relations of Cyrus to us are identical with ours to him. We are no longer his soldiers, since we have ceased to follow him, and he on his side is no longer our paymaster. He, however, no doubt considers himself wronged by us, and though he goes on sending for me, I cannot bring myself to go to him, for two reasons, chiefly from a sense of shame, for I am forced to admit to myself that I have altogether deceived him, but partly, too, because I am afraid of him seizing me, and inflicting a penalty on the wrongs which he conceives that I have done him. In my opinion, then, this is no time for us to go to sleep and forget all about ourselves. Rather, it is high time to deliberate on our next move, and, as long as we do not remain here, we had better bethink us how we are to abide in security, or, if we are resolved to turn our backs at once, what will be the safest means of retreat, and, further, how we are to procure supplies, for without supplies there is no profit whatsoever in the general or the private soldier. The man with whom we have to deal is an excellent friend to his friends, but a very dangerous enemy to his foes, and he is backed up by a force of infantry and cavalry and ships, such as we all alike very well see and know since we can hardly be said to have posted ourselves at any great distance from him. If, then, anyone has a suggestion to make, now is the time to speak. With these words he ceased. Then various speakers stood up, some of their own motion to propound their views, others inspired by Clearchus to dilate on the hopeless difficulty of either staying or going back without the good will of Cyrus. One of these in particular with a make-believe of anxiety to commence the homeward march without further pause, called upon them instantly to choose other generals if Clearchus were not himself prepared to lead them back. Let them at once purchase supplies, the market being in the heart of the Asiatic clamp. Let them pack up their baggage. Let them, he added, go to Cyrus and ask for some ships in order to return by sea. If he refuses to give them ships... Let them demand of him a guide to lead them back through a friendly district, and if he would not so much as give them a guide, they could but put themselves, without more ado, in marching order, and send on a detachment to occupy the pass, before Cyrus and the Cilicians, whose property, the speaker added, we have so plentifully pillaged, can anticipate us. Such were the remarks of that speaker. He was followed by Clearchus, who merely said, as to my acting personally as general at this season, pray do not propose it. I can see numerous obstacles to my doing so. Obedience in the fullest I can render to the man of your choice. That is another matter, and you shall see and know that I can play my part under command with the best of you. After Clearchus, another spokesman stood up and proceeded to point out the simplicity of the speaker who proposed to ask for vessels, just as if Cyrus were minded to renounce the expedition and sail back again. And let me further point out, he said, 
What a simple-minded notion it is to beg a guide of the very man whose designs we are marring. If we can trust any guide whom Cyrus may vouchsafe to us, why not order Cyrus at once to occupy the pass on our behoof? For my part, I should think twice before I set foot on any ship that he might give us, for fear lest he should sink them with his men of war. And I should equally hesitate to follow any guide of his. He might lead us into some place out of which we should find it impossible to escape. I should much prefer, if I am to return home against the will of Cyrus at all, to give him the slip, and so be gone. Which indeed is impossible, but these schemes are simply nonsensical. My proposal is that a deputation of fit persons, with Clearchus, should go to Cyrus. Let them go to Cyrus and ask him what use he proposes to make of us, and if the business is at all similar to that on which he once before employed a body of foreigners, let us by all means follow. Let us show that we are the equals of those who accompanied him on his march up formerly. But if the design should turn out to be of larger import than the former one, involving more toil and more danger, we should ask him either to give us good reasons for following his lead, or else consent to send us away into a friendly country. In this way, whether we follow him, we shall do so as friends, and with heart and soul, or whether we go back, we shall do so in security. The answer, this, shall be reported to us here, and when we have heard it, we will advise as to our best course. This resolution was carried, and they chose and sent a deputation with Clearchus, who put to Cyrus the questions which had been agreed upon by the army. Cyrus replied as follows, that he had received news that Abrocomus, an enemy of his, was posted on the Euphrates, twelve stages off. His object was to march against this aforesaid Abrocomus, and if he were still there he wished to inflict punishment upon him. Or, if he be fled so the reply concluded, we will there deliberate on the best course. The deputation received the answer and reported it to the soldiers. The suspicion that he was leading them against the king was not dispelled, but it seemed best to follow him. They only demanded an increase of pay, and Cyrus promised them to give them half as much again as they had hitherto received, that is to say, a dark and a half a month to each man, instead of a dark. Was he really leading them to attack the king? Not even at this moment was anyone apprised of the fact, at any rate in an open and public manner. Number four. From this point he marched two stages, ten parasangs, to the river Saris, which is two hundred feet broad, and from the Saris he marched a single stage, five parasangs, to Isi, the last city in Cilicia. It lies on the seaboard, a prosperous, large, and flourishing town. Here they halted three days, and here Cyrus was joined by his fleet. There were thirty-five ships from Peloponnesus, with the Lacedaemonian admiral Pythagoras on board. These had been piloted from Ephesus by Tamos the Egyptian, who himself had another fleet of twenty-five ships belonging to Cyrus. These had formed Tamos's blockading squadron at Miletus when that city sided with Tissaphernes. He had also used them in other military services rendered to Cyrus in his operations against that satrap. There was a third officer on board the fleet, 
the Lacedaemonian Carisophus, who had been sent for by Cyrus, and had brought with him seven hundred hoplites, over whom he was to act as general in the service of Cyrus. The fleet lay at anchor opposite Cyrus's tent. Here, too, another reinforcement presented itself. It was a body of four hundred hoplites, Hellenic mercenaries in the service of Abrocomus, who deserted him for Cyrus, and joined in the campaign against the king. From Isi he marched a single stage, five parasangs, to the gates of Cilicia in Syria. This was a double fortress. The inner and nearer one, which protects Cilicia, was held by Cinesius, and a garrison of Cilicians. The outer and further one protecting Syria was reported to be garrisoned by a body of the king's troops. Through the gap between the two fortresses flows a river, named the Carsus, which is a hundred feet broad, and the whole space between was scarcely more than six hundred yards. To force a passage here would be impossible, so narrow was the pass itself, with the fortification walls stretching down to the sea, and precipitous rocks above, while both fortresses were furnished with gates. It was the existence of this pass which had induced Cyrus to send for the fleet, so as to enable him to lead a body of hoplites inside and outside the gates, and so to force a passage through the enemy, if he were guarding the Syrian gate, as he fully expected to find Abrocomus doing so with a large army. This, however, Abrocomus had not done, but as soon as he learnt that Cyrus was in Cilicia, he had turned around and made his exit from Phoenicia to join the king with an army amounting, as report said, to three hundred thousand men. From this point Cyrus pursued his march through Syria, a single stage, five parasangs, to Mirandus, a city inhabited by Phoenicians on the seacoast. This was a commercial port, and numerous merchant vessels were riding at anchor in the harbor. Here they halted seven days, and here Xenius, the Arcadian general, and Pasian, the Megarian, got on board a trader, and having stowed away their most valuable effects, set sail for home. Most people explain the act as the outcome of a fit of jealousy, because Cyrus had allowed Clearchus to retain their men, who had deserted to him, in hopes of returning to Hellas, instead of marching against the king. When the two had so vanished, a rumor spread that Cyrus was after them with some ships of war, and some hoped the cowards might be caught. Others pitied them, if that should be their fate. But Cyrus summoned the generals and addressed them. Xenius and Passion, he said, have taken leave of us, but they need not flatter themselves that in doing so they have stolen into hiding. I know where they have gone, nor will they owe their escape to speed. I have men a war to capture their craft if I like, but heaven help me, if I mean to pursue them, never shall it be said of me that I turn people to account as long as they stay with me, but as soon as they are minded to be off, I seize and maltreat them and strip them of their wealth. Not so. Let them go, with the consciousness that our behavior to them is better than theirs to us. And yet I have their children and wives, safe under lock and key at Trellis. They shall not be deprived even of these. They shall receive them back in return for their former goodness to me. So he spoke, and the Hellenes, 
even those who had been out of heart at the thought of marching up the country, when they heard of the nobleness of Cyrus, were happier and more eager to follow him on his path. After this, Cyrus marched onward four stages, twenty parasangs to the river Chalice. That river is a hundred feet broad and is stocked with tame fish, which the Syrians regard as gods and will not suffer to be injured. So too the pigeons of the place. The villages in which they camp belong to Parisatis, as part of her girdle money. From this point he marched on five stages, thirty parasangs to the sources of the river Dardas, which is one hundred feet broad. Here stood the palace of Belisus, the ruler of Syria, with its park, which was a very large and beautiful one, and full of the products of all the seasons in their course. But Cyrus cut down the park and burnt the palace. Thence he marched on three stages, fifteen parasangs, to the river Euphrates, which is nearly half a mile broad. A large and flourishing city named Thapsicus stands on its banks. Here they halted five days, and here Cyrus sent for the generals of the Hellenes, and told them that the advance was now to be made upon Babylon against the great king. He bade them to communicate this information to the soldiers and persuade them to follow. The generals called an assembly and announced the news to the soldiers. The latter were indignant and angry with the generals, accusing them of having kept secret what they had long known and refused to go unless a bribe of money were given them as had been given to their predecessors when they went up with Cyrus to the court of his father, not as now to fight a battle, but on a peaceful errand, the visit of a son to his father by invitation. The demand was reported to Cyrus by the generals, and he undertook to give each man five silver minae as soon as Babylon was reached, and their pay in full until he had safely conveyed them back to Ionia again. In this manner the Hellenic force was persuaded, that is to say, the majority of them. Menon, indeed, before it was clear what the rest of the soldiers would do, whether in fact they would follow the Cyrus or not, collected his own troops apart and made them the following speech. Men, he said, if you will listen to me, there is a method by which, without risk or toil, you may win the special favor of Cyrus beyond the rest of the soldiers. You ask what is it I should have you to do? I will tell you. Cyrus, at this instant, is begging the Hellenes to follow him to attack the king. I say, then, cross the Euphrates at once, before it is clear what the answer the rest will make. If they vote in favor of following, you will get the credit of having set the example, and Cyrus will be grateful to you. He will look upon you as being the heartiest in his cause. He will repay, as of all the others he best knows how, while... If the rest vote against crossing, we shall go back again, but as the sole adherents, whose fidelity he can altogether trust. It is you whom Cyrus will turn to account, as commandants of garrisons or captains of companies. You need only ask him for whatever you want, and you will get it from him, as being the friends of Cyrus. The men heard and obeyed, and before the rest had given their answer, they were already across. But when Cyrus perceived that Menon's troops had crossed, he was well pleased, and he sent Glus in the division in question with this message. Soldiers, accept my thanks at present. Eventually, you shall thank me. 
I will see to that, or my name is not Cyrus. The soldiers, therefore, could not but pray heartily for his success. So high their hopes ran. But to Menon, it was said, he sent gifts with lordly liberality. This done, Cyrus proceeded to cross, and in his wake followed the rest of the armament to a man. As they forded, never a man was wedded above the chest, nor even until this moment, said the men of Thapsacus, had the river been so crossed on foot, boats had always been required. But these, at the present time, Abrocomus, in his desire to hinder Cyrus from crossing, had been at pains to burn. Thus the passage was looked upon as a thing miraculous. The river had manifestly retired before the face of Cyrus, like a courtier bowing to his future king. From this place he continued his march through Syria, nine stages, fifty parasangs, and they reached the river Araxes. Here were several villages full of corn and wine, in which they halted three days and provisioned the army. End of Book One, Part Two